And would you please turn to Luke 15? We're going to read the entire chapter. Thanks, Austin. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what was this thing's meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and now is found. Thanks. You may be seated. Amen.
Thank you, Garens. Thank you for all that you do. Rick is an elder. Don is children's ministry director extraordinaire. Thank you. I know that because there are two Shaw men back there. Yeah, so much grace required. Um, in his book, Nostalgia, Going Home in a Homeless World, Anthony Esselin makes the claim. He says, you, you observe all the natural world, and only mankind is lost. Since so many of us would talk about life as a, uh, we're travelers on a journey, that we're pilgrims, that we are in fact journeying, but a lot of times that word is used that we're kind of out and we're going somewhere. The question is, where? And what Esalen's point is, which I think is a good one, it's as if every person has a longing at some point uh, to be home at the end of the day. Is there a place for me to belong at the end of this journey called life? And when we think of home, it's not just that you have, you know, a little piece of property with four walls. It's not so much that building, but this idea of a place of order, a place of love, a place of belonging, a place where we can make a contribution. Is there some place that we're, as we sojourn, to use the verb from our reading, as we're sojourning through this life, where are we going and how do we get there? Are we longing for home? And in our passage again, we're going to revisit chapter 15. I know what some of you are thinking. You say, Pastor Shaw is really confused because we read the same passage last week. Say, yeah, we did. We've all, we built in two uh, chapters on this. Caleb gave an excellent message on the two lost sons uh, last time. Uh, but looking at it, because this is such a rich, uh, a rich couple of parables, just looking at it from a slightly different angle on this matter of coming home. And to pin that down, there is a word that's very important, and maybe not one that you hear outside the church, but I think what Jesus is really, you know, at, at one level, really driving at here. Look at what he's calling for. Take a look at verse 7. He tells the story of the lost sheep being found and coming home with that sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 others. And then if you skip down to verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents that he's talking about repentance. And if you think about this younger son, the change in his life, that this becomes a dramatization, that the way that the younger son is changed uh, tells us what repentance really is, the movement uh, from being lost to being found. And so that's what we're going to do today to look at the nature of repentance, why it's the bedrock of, of really everything that we do at Providence, and how we then as a church conduct our affairs in, in light of this great truth. So question number one, just a couple, couple questions to phrase our time now. In uh, chapter 15 from verse 11, we have to ask, why does the younger son do this? I mean, at some, he must have had a very nice life. His dad was a man of means, uh, that they had plenty of servants. Um, why does he, you know, set out to do this, to cause so much pain? Now, of course, he wouldn't have known that, but I have to answer that question, I think, with, with something that all of us were on a quest for at some level. But this, ultimately, is a quest for pleasure. That he sees an opportunity, say, Dad's rich, I'm getting an inheritance, I can claim it now, even though in so doing, I'm kind of wishing my father dead. I'm going to take what's mine, and I'm going to go out and indulge the flesh. It's what he does. It's what the older brother says, right? He goes out and spends money on all this stuff. He's feeling good. He's sowing his wild oats. Um, let's all have as much pleasure as possible. 
Now, what some people hear when I bring up this topic, say in English, we've got some associated terms, but they are different to say, well, we, we know what happiness is and that, uh, what that means to our minds and our lives. We've got the category of joy that I think is different from happiness. It's kind of more uh, less fleeting and more uh, deep, uh, dependent upon our relationship in God. But this category of pleasure, how would you define pleasure? I, I think something like this, the positive sensation that we get when we indulge the appetites of our flesh. There are certain things I can do with my body uh, that just feel good, and all of us at some point want to feel that degree of pleasure. Now, some will hear this and say, well, you know, those Christians, they're always against pleasure. That anytime there's something that comes up that feels good, that I wanna do, those Christians just say no. This is very important. Scripture is not against pleasure that the Bible never shuns us for experiencing positive sensations. In fact, this is a, a something the church can recapture against our culture is that the, the body matters, the sensations of the body matters. But here's what we must say, and this is what the younger son teaches us, is that pleasures are much like a fire. That if you keep the fire in the firebox or in the fire pit, it's really nice and it, it makes everybody kind of happier. It's in its rightful place and it raises the mood but if that fire gets outside of that firebox, you say there can be real danger and real loss. Say pleasure's like that. God says, I gave you bodies. I know about sensations that you don't need to be embarrassed about them, but let's keep them where they belong. You know, how many times I've heard, well, don't you know the Bible's against sex? I say the Bible is not against sex. The Bible is for sex within its rightful framework. And so pleasure, this young man, like many people, again, many of us in this room, at some point you get you know, to a point in your life, say, look, there's an opportunity here. I've got a short window. I've got a chance to do it. You take what you can, and you go out, and you do whatever feels good. But what about this matter, if we can distinguish it a bit further, the difference between what we can call legitimate and illegitimate pleasures? Beyond, some of us will just say, well, I just read the Bible, and there are some things that are, that are outlawed, and I just, that, that's great. I mean, I think that's test number one as to whether I'm indulging in a legitimate or illegitimate pleasure is what does God's Word say. But if I could press two more parameters for us to think about, legitimate pleasure for a Christian usually, if this is helpful, is paid for before you indulge the pleasure. It's paid for up front. It's something that is earned in a way that says, okay, I've put in the hard work, and as I've put in the hard work, uh, then I can have something that, that, that is nice. So you could imagine a young couple saying, we're going to work really hard for the next six months. We're going to pay off all of our credit card debt, and at the end of paying off all their credit card debt, maybe they say, then we're going to go out together and celebrate with a nice meal. You see, you, you, you pay for that pleasure up front. It's a calculated way, and then I'd add to that, not, not or, but and, legitimate pleasure biblically is always shared with others. It's never at the expense of others. Run it through that grid. So you think of something like an affair. You say, well, that, that's an illegitimate pleasure because it, it costs a lot. Of, it, it hurts other people. So legitimate pleasure biblically is usually paid for up front with a, a kind of plan, a, a built-in to say, I'm going to work hard so that I can have this sensation. And that's a very good thing. God says, you know, work hard, apply yourselves, and, and make an earning. And when you do, it's okay to celebrate, much like our passage does. To say there's a big celebration. There is, in fact, a kind of indulgence here, right? There's a big banquet. God would have us think of heaven as a big banquet. God is not against pleasure, but it's legitimate pleasure, planned, paid for before, and always shared and not at the expense of others. Now, what about illegitimate pleasure? 
usually you pay for it on the back end. That it's usually something that's done impulsively or excessively. To say that I've gone for it too quick, I had the opportunity and I took it without thinking about it and then you pay for it, or I've done so, I've taken this pleasure and I've done so excessively and because of that excess, now I'm paying for it. And usually, illegitimate pleasure comes at the expense of other people, that the other people become the means to my end of feeling good. So now let's look at this younger brother. Where does he fall on these pleasures that he's indulging in? Well, he's done nothing to earn it. He's just living off of his father. There's not this built-in, okay, I'm going to work hard and plan for it and then, and then have this positive celebration. No, it's pretty much just a plundering. And it's done a, a lot of damage to his family unit and no doubt to, to the women that he's using. That it is an illegitimate pleasure. And friends, when we, and all of us again at some point on a pleasure quest, but when we find ourselves in illegitimate pleasure, I want to look at the passage, how, how this just 2,000 years later, the, the same pattern, I think a lot of us in the room say, yep, I know how this goes. Look at what happens to this guy. So here he goes, you know, he's, he's thinking, what could possibly go wrong? This is great. I mean, look at all this money I've got. I'm just going to go out and it's going to feel great. Until verse 14, well, the resources run out. There's nothing left. You've squandered it all. You've been a poor manager and a poor steward of the things that you've had. You've wasted them on things, consumables, and you're dried up. You see, friends, that pleasures, by definition, if you think of how we use that word pleasure, by definition, it's not sustainable. Like, you know, if you talk to people who've come out, you could interview a modern-day younger son, they'll talk about this. It's a law of diminishing returns. You know, the first time you do something, you say, oh, that feels pretty good. But what happens now? You need a little bit more. You need a little bit more. And pretty soon what happens is you just keep indulging, indulging, indulging. You need more to get your kid. You need more, uh, you know, uh, you become more reckless and, and more excessive to get the same amount of pleasure that it falls prey to the law of diminishing returns until you say, I got nothing left. Because the pleasure has been consumed outside of God's framework, and on my terms, it's an illegitimate pleasure, not a legitimate one, so resources are finite. The Epicureans knew this. They, they built their whole philosophy on what they called sustainable pleasures because pleasure, non-sustainable pleasure, just pr uh, going out and consuming and indulging, you reach a ceiling pretty quick. And in this case, the guy is blood dry. How about secondly, what can happen to us in illegitimate, a life of illegitimate pleasures? Look at verse 14. You want to say, interesting question. Who sent the famine? Who sent the severe famine? Who drew that one up? Which one of you chose the weather today? Who's to celebrate for the rain? <laughs> no, you get the idea. There are things that happen in this life where you just say, I have no control. That these things have happened, and as a result of them happening, I'm in a tough spot. And what happens to a lot of young guys, we get out there and we're doing our thing and we're taking all this pleasure, and, you know, you, and, and then what happens? You start to you age. You start to have different longings in life. Your metabolism changes, and you're thinking, you know, the circumstances are, are changing, and even, you know, economics change. All kinds of circumstances beyond my control change, and when that happens, and we're living in illegitimate uh, pleasure, it's really painful. It's really painful. In this case, a famine. An unexpected famine that God sends. All right, thirdly, 
uh, also verse 14, what happens to him? You might say, well, I've never gone off and squandered things, you know, never indulged like this, but what does happen to us when we're plowing through life is we find ourselves like this young man in need. You see those two little words? He finds himself in need. If we go through life just taking, uh, and we have that, th- that too is one you just say, there's going to be a point in my life where I feel deep down, if I'm honest, if I'm courageous enough to say, I need, I need help. I need other people to care about me and to love me and to help me. And this young man learns that lesson too. So what's happened is resources are gone. His circumstances are changing. And for the first time in his life, he says, you know, maybe, maybe I need some other people in my life in a meaningful way. Maybe I need some other people to speak into my life and to hold me up and to teach me. And I hope all of us, those of us who are Christians, have learned this lesson to say, I desperately need other people. That's why, you know, a lot of things, but why I'm a member of a church. I need other people speaking into my life, helping me, telling me, um, you know, who I am in Christ. And so it goes. So he finds himself needing others. Here's a man who's done nothing but perpetually take and he finds himself, well, I need someone to love and, and, and to give. I need, in other words, what he needs is someone to behave the exact opposite the way he's been behaving, and that's very clear to him. So we can't just go in taking and indulging. And then how about verse 16? It's a very sad, a sad thing, I think. We've all known this. So he's in real need, and then you see no, no one gave him anything. It's as if the, the passage is, um, there are no friends. I knew guys like this in high school, and you know, looking back, he threw the best parties, he had the best booze, and everybody came, and the house was crowded, and we were all having fun, and at some point, you're just having fun, and everybody knows, say, nobody really likes the guy. He's not a really nice guy. We're just here for his stuff. It's a little bit like, you can picture this younger guy, right? He's going out, and he gets, a, you know, he's soliciting all the high-end women, and it's going, and the banquets are great. There's, there's nothing there. There's no real friendships. When he's in trouble, everybody scatters. He's not invested in anything that really matters. And for these reasons, friends, I think it is why G.K. Chesterton, the the Catholic intellectual, he says this, you know, we get a lot of questions, we uh, Christians, pastors, about the problem of pain. You know, how could you believe in a God who allows so much suffering? Chesterton, I think, was spot on. He says, humans don't grow weary because of pain. They grow weary because of pleasure. How could it be that we have so much and yet we feel so empty? I've tapped into everything on the human level that I possibly could, and the more that I do that, and the more that I go, the less I experience pleasure, the more my life's falling apart, where can I turn? And so I ask you to probe a bit further on this. Let's suppose what happens if you just came into the story, you know, here you're an outsider, and you come in at verses 15 and 16, and you see this poor chap, this young guy, and he's down, he's got his head down in the pig trough. I grew up in Jaga County. There's a great county fair out there. I, I, you know, always make sure to look at the hogs, you know, and say, you're down there and you're eating with the hogs. And, and people would say, look at this poor young man. He's down there and he's got his head down there eating those corn cobs with those hogs. How could there be a good God in this world? What kind of good God would permit that poor young man to be down there with his head down in the basin? Friends, look at this story. The fact that this young man had his head down in there with the hogs was an act of a merciful father because it is in this moment that this young man came to the end of himself 
It is in this moment that God quickened his heart to see that there's a better way, that there is a homecoming to be had, that on this journey of life, that there's something better to be had. And so this very thing that some people would see as suffering and the reason to dismiss God, we can, in light of this parable, see that is the mercy of God drawing us to the real truth. I need God, and I need a, be, a place to be at the end, friends. This language of being far off, all of us, as Rick just said, as pa uh, Jim Whiteman said, Pastor Jim, which is true, Pastor Jim Whiteman, priesthood of all believers, <laughs> as Jim led us, uh, you know, in prayer on Saturday morning, there's a scary prayer that this parable lends itself to. It's a, it's a, it's a frightening prayer. I've heard it prayed a few times in my life that you've got a child or a loved one and they're in the far country. They're not really in a far country. They're spiritually in a far country. They're traveling and on some kind of pilgrimage and they can't find their way. What, is a, what does a parent pray? Terrifying. Lord, do something to bring my loved one to the end of themselves. Do something in their life that they might come back home. Do something to make them realize that you're a loving father and you're there ready to embrace them. And that's friends, the problem of pleasure and why God in his kindness would bring us to the end of ourselves, sometimes no doubt in very hard circumstances, but many a person in this room will testify, you know what, I had my head one time down in a porcelain basin, and at that moment, God got a hold of my heart. And it was an act of mercy that God allowed me to go to that place so that I might come to know the truth and that I might come home. And that's a testimony of every Christian, I think. So understand the problem of pleasure. Legitimate pleasures in the boundaries of God's God's word and the boundaries of how he's made us, very good. Illegitimate ple pleasures box us in, make us feel lousy, bring us to the end of ourselves, and at that moment, we turn. So let, secondly now, let's capture the nature of repentance. As Jesus would call these Pharisees to turn or to be concerned about those who are turned, notice how this younger son models for us what it means to come back home. How does it happen? How does he turn away from this lifestyle and toward God? Firstly, notice that there is a mental dimension, that there's a thinking component. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, or the NASB, maybe a little bit better, when he came to his senses. Now, I don't know about you, but I get this one a lot too. I could never be a Christian because I have to turn my brain off. Um, I could never be one of you people that, that believes in Jesus because when you step into it, you know, you just b follow blind guides and the, the pastors just tell you to stop thinking and I just, you know, uh, I, I can't do that because, friends, never, ne it's the exact opposite. We are to love God with all of our minds. It's in, it's in the great commandment to love God with all of our minds that God made our brains so that we could think, so that we can conceptualize these things. And that as we think, it's not, oh, keep those, don't you ask those questions in church. That isn't a place. It's the exact opposite. God's big enough for all of our questions. He gave us mind, minds to think. And here's a great example of a young man who, who comes to a sense, this isn't working. Me on my own is not working. I feel that this is not the way to do things. Is there a better way? And how do you think about it? You know, how many times I heard Alistair McGrath tell his story. You know, he's educated as a, a what, molecular biophysicist at Oxford and was a, a, you know, forceful atheist, he would say. It was the exact opposite for him. He said, actually, my atheism, my materialism could not sustain my intellectual life. Only the Christian view could sustain my intellectual life because it gave purpose and meaning and connections to all the things that I was studying. 
I remember years ago now, so it's, you can say that now, you know, year, years ago at Baldwin Wallace when I was just starting off as a pastor, I, re, I remember uh, finding there was a humanist club, basically an atheist club on campus, and I wrote the advisor and I said, you know, could I come? I'd love to just have a dialogue. I'm a Christian. I like to talk about these things. They, they had me, to my surprise, there's probably 10 or 15 students, you know, on an afternoon there, and they're telling me about their atheism. And I remember just asking what I thought to be a very simple question. I said something to the effect of, on what basis do you people judge right and wrong? And it was as if they had no answers, they didn't think about it, and I wasn't trying to be fancy, and I'm not holding my, but it would seem like something as basic of, well, if you, if you determine, if you're living your life based on what you think is right and wrong, who's guiding you? Where do you get that basis? If you've all emerged from the soup, if we're all just here as a product of chance, where do you get morality? It's just one question out of many questions. So the point is, the point here is that as this young man goes out and does his own thing, he encounters the problems of illegitimate pleasures, that there's a thinking dimension which every Christian is invited to, to think about God, to think about who we are, where we get right and wrong, what's the best life to live, where are we going, where's the journey home? It is the life of the mind, the mental dimension of knowing the life in God is the best life to live. Secondly, the emotional dimension the emotional dimension of repentance. Having been raised in the church, I think I've probably read this, I, I feel very comfortable saying hundreds, maybe more than a thousand times. And every time I read this story, I can't, I am moved. Can you picture, you put yourself here? Young man's in a jam, he's embarrassed himself, Maybe other things going on because of his lifestyle. He says, I got to go home. I'm going home. I better get my speech ready. Will, will dad have me back? May, if he has me back, I know I'm going to be out, out on the outside. And he just tries to get his lines right. Dad, uh, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he keeps rehearsing the speech and finally the day comes and he goes... You say, what about the dad? You think maybe years go by, he's now an old man, eyesight failing, body failing, maybe deep down every day as he's conducting his affairs, you say, I wonder if that boy of mine, I wonder how he's doing. Is he still alive? One day the old man gets word from one of his hired hands, there's a straggler who's come on your grounds, some thin, sick-looking fellow. Old man gets up, looks out on the hill. Could it, could it be? Could it be my boy? The old man raises his tunic and as he humbles his way out, kind of staggering out, the, the warm embrace and the sun with quivering lips, he tries to get his speech out. Dad, I've sinned against. Dad says, no time for speeches, son. You come here, my boy. You're back home. That the emotional longing of every human heart to belong, to be right with God, to be right with the ones around you. Say so that is not something to be ignored. And I do pray that we would be those who continue to pursue those who are far from us and that we long for the day to have more key people come to know Jesus, that that's a good thing for them to come. And this young man, he gets it, right? And there's a very funny thing that happens here. 
verses 19 and 21. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Do you, do you see the change in his life? So this was the ultimate entitled guy. Give me what's mine. I am your son, and I'm going to take your inheritance. That's who I am. Grabs it. And, Look at the change now. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That he's a broken man. That this is what we call the conviction of sin. And he comes home, and there's an embrace. Can we have the picture of Rembrandt? I think very famous painting. Thank you. Thank you, brothers. Sister Ruth, Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. You know, Henry Nouwen went to St. Petersburg, Russia, to see this. And you know what he said? I stare at the hands for four hours. And he loved the hands because he said, if you notice the father's left hand to our right, it's quite sturdy looking. It's a, it's a powerful hand, undoubtedly a man's hand. And uh, there's a sense of nothing's going to happen to you here beyond what I will permit to have happen. But if you look at the right hand, the right hand is painted much differently, and it's a loving hand that you're loved here, and you'll be welcomed here, and it's a good place, and it's a safe place. Thank you very much. And I think as more you study that painting and looking at this story, say so that's the story of every Christian. You say you come to God the Father. His strong hand says there's nothing that happens to you beyond what I will. And the warm hand of saying whatever has happened to you in this life, you belong here, that you are loved, and you're in my family. So the emotional dimension of repentance, of coming home. Lastly, I know, I must go quickly now, the volitional dimension that every time a person really becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus, that we change course. The day comes where he says, you know what, I am not doing this anymore, and there's a pivot, he's thinking about it, this isn't working, the life of the mind is alive, he's longing to be home, he, well, he's thinking about his dad, the dad wants him home, there's an emotional, and now he turns and he goes. This is what the Bible would mean by bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Is my life bearing out this great truth that I'm turning away from the world and towards the Lord Jesus? All kinds of things we can think about here. I remember years ago talking to a couple. Uh, they had come to Christ. They were living together and they, before they were married. They were living together. They came to Christ. And I said, well, there's, a, there's an action point here. And, and to their credit, you know what they did? Even though the, you know, say, well, we're not going to move out because it's only four months and that's going to cost us a lot of money. Say, well, I don't know, you know, I don't think that's a reason for obedience to God. And to their credit, guess what they did? They moved out. And I said, that's bearing fruit with keeping repentance. That is until their wedding day. And at their wedding day, they, they came back and lived together. I said, that's the kind of thing where you see in the life of, okay, so I'm thinking about this. God is true. A life away from him is going to box me in. It's no place to live. There's an emotional dimension. I want to be with the people, uh, the, you know, the people of God in the arms of God and a volitional dimension that I'm going to pivot and, and do something by aid of God's spirit that uh, pleases him. You know, what could this be for us? I, I don't know, you know, go, going off social media, getting out of a, a toxic relationship. There's all kinds of things, and that's where the church comes in, that if you, you look to your left and your right, behind you and in front of you, you've got a group of people here as members of the church saying, we're on board with this. That's how we were. We were once this prodigal. We were once dense, dead, and now we're alive, that we believe with our minds that God is true, that there's an emotional longing, that there's a place of love here, and that we've, uh, by God's spirit, changed the way we've behaved to honor him, and there's accountability and love in the family of the church. And so that's where I end, and then kind of closing application. What does the church do with this story? That a church models repentance all the time. 
that repentance is not just a one-time thing, though that's important as we've been talking about, but it's the very men mentality. So we get up in the morning, you're a Christ follower, say, well, the world's got a lot of good things to offer and a lot of things that feel really good. Maybe today, you know, I'm a little bored with the way things are going, I'm going for it. You say, no, a turning away from what the world offers and a turning towards Jesus to say, this is good and right and true and beautiful. And I pray that every member of our church would kind of run through this. Yep, God is true. I've thought about it a lot. And uh, you don't have to turn your brain off at the door that this is, believe me, I've been away from God and that was not a pleasant place and I was feeling really lousy and hurting a lot of people. And by God's grace, we turn towards one another in service and obedience. So the church models repentance so that the lost might be one. How easy it would be, and I, how easy it would be for providence to become like these Pharisees you know, we're good. Um, plenty of people here. Lots of parking issues as it is. We're good. Don't be talking to those non-Christians about any of this. Say, that's a little bit like they were, weren't they? Like, we still got the 99, we're going strong. Say, we'd be failing in our mission. That may ours be a church that genuinely, that the, the, the non-believer is not, we, we sometimes think of a non-believer as our, the non-believer is not our enemy. The non-believer is exactly how we would be without Jesus in our lives. That we don't mock them, we're not cruel to them, but we invite them to this wonderful truth that God has made known to us, that he put forth Jesus into history that we can come to God and have fellowship with God and relate to God by surrendering to Jesus, by acknowledging our sin, by receiving Jesus, by seeing what he did on the cross for us and trusting him and surrendering to him. And when we do that, say, it opens up this new vista of being back in the arms of the Father. So Christian, may we model repentance, may we speak about repentance, may we do so with joy about what God has done. And I pray if you're not a Christian here, we, Again, I'm, I'm thankful. Some, sometimes if you're not a Christian and you come to a church like this, you think, well, is everybody here a Christian? I will tell you, I know because I get emails and I, I just, I, there are always, I don't think there's been a Sunday in three and a half years where there's not at least been one non-Christian here. There are non-Christians in this room, but if you're here today and you say, you know, I'm, I kind of am in a far country. I, I'm out trying to make my way doing whatever feels good, and it's not working, what, what do I do? <laughs> so there's great news. You surrender to Jesus. The man God put, the son of God who God put into history, who took what we deserved on the cross, and you can receive him even today and live for him, and God will go to work on your life. You'll be a part of the family of God, and we'll go forward together. So that is our prayer, church. May we model repentance. May we speak about it. May we talk about the different dimensions and encourage each other on this uh, great journey as we near our celestial home, uh, all on a journey home together in the arms of the Father. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for uh, what you've done for us by granting us the gift of repentance. Some, thank goodness, Lord, you didn't need to bring us to that place that <laughs> we thank you. And others here today maybe just in a really tough spot that is uh, just a really tough moment. And I pray that like this younger brother, that you would grant them the gift of repentance, that they would see that uh, both in their minds that there's a better way to be in the arms of our maker, that the thought life can be made alive, that a life in you is what makes sense of everything. Lord, that there'd be 
in opening up to the emotional reality of this, that we don't want to go through life alone and alienated and angry or whatever, but actually we want to be embraced, that we want to belong. We want to love and be loved. And Lord, that you'd give us the courage to make a plan and be accountable in the changes that we need to make to bring our lives more in conformity of the Lord Jesus. And to this end, Lord, as we live this out, even as our catechism said, that as this would be our testimony, as we'd obey you, that others would come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, in whom, Lord, we know that with Jesus and at your side, as Psalm 16 says, that there are pleasures forevermore.